You're listening to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe, a podcast dedicated to women at all stages of our health and wellness journey. I'm Christy from Christy Lee Nutrition. And I'm Cammy from This Mum's Kitchen. And together, we're here to inspire you with the knowledge and confidence to love into your mind, body, spirit, and lifestyle. Now set aside some time for you and join us on this cup-filling journey. Hello and welcome back to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe. You're here with Christy today and I'm going to be talking about what to eat for endometriosis, part two, a deep dive into IBS, gut health and excess estrogen. So if you've been listening to this season two of the podcast, you would probably already know a little bit about irritable bowel syndrome, which is short IBS, and the way that hormones can impact our gut. Or if you've only just joined me today for the very first time, I recommend that after this episode, go back to IBS episode, which was episode number 15, and also my episode on the link between bloating, periods, cramps, and poos, which was episode number 13. So that will help you just keep building your foundation of knowledge in this space. So today you're going to learn the link between endo and IBS symptoms, how to improve your gut microbiome and use the low FODMAP diet. I'm going to debunk some myths around gluten and soy foods. I'm going to then follow that with a discussion about how to reduce excess estrogen by looking into fiber, brassicas and endocrine disruptors. And then I'm going to finish off on a brief look into lifestyle. So I'll cover just a few things about sleep, stress and movement and how they all are interlinked with each other. So to start off with, I'm going to highlight the connection between IBS and hormone disorders such as endometriosis. So in my clinic, I frequently hear the same story that my clients with endo were left undiagnosed for many years, honestly, upwards of like 12 years with their symptoms simply being passed off as just IBS. And the big reason that this happens is that because both conditions have multiple overlapping symptoms. And that would include things like visceral hypersensitivity. So that's where you have quite an extreme sensitivity or sensitization of your organs. You can feel changes in volume and and fluid in there and movement. Um, Second thing would be bloating. Thirdly, diarrhea or constipation or both. Fourthly, pain when passing a stool. So pain when you go to do a number two on the toilet. Some people um, experience nausea in both groups. And in general, both groups have a reduced quality of life. So I guess gastrointestinal symptoms are known to be almost as common as gynecological symptoms in women with endo. And that was really well highlighted in a study from 2009 that investigated about 355 women who were undergoing a laparoscopy for suspected endo. And they found that gastrointestinal symptoms, like the ones I mentioned before, were present in 90% of patients with confirmed endo. And not surprisingly, bloating was the most common. And I see this myself all the time in my clinic. Mm -hmm. 
Another condition that you may have heard of, polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS for short, this group of women also suffer similar symptoms. And there was a study done in 2010 that found that 41.7% of the participants in that study with PCOS appeared to suffer from gastrointestinal symptoms, very similar to IBS as well. There's a lot uh, less study done in PCOS and and IBS, um, but this is probably one of the first studies that have really started to look into how many of these women also have problems with their gut function. Now, firstly, endometriosis must be excluded before a doctor diagnoses IBS. However, as I highlighted in part one of my what to eat for endometriosis episode, so many doctors really hesitate to offer a laparoscopy because it's quite invasive and it's costly. So it's it's really only a keyhole surgery, but you do need to go under general, general anesthetic and there is um, a cost that will come with that if you don't have um, health insurance cover. Now, I do get this question a lot as well. So a lot of women who have IBS without endo confirmed, they will often ask, how do I know if my IBS might actually be underlying endometriosis? So to help you understand if your IBS might actually be underlying endo, look out for these key symptoms. The first one is pain on intercourse. So that's pain during sex, having very heavy periods, pain referring to the back and the pelvis. Some women get it down their leg as well. You might notice a worsening of your bowel symptoms during your period. A primary family member, so like a mum, a sister or an aunt might have endometriosis in your family. So we do know there's a strong genetic link. Or you might have trouble conceiving. So if you're if you're uh, sorry under 35 years old, it shouldn't take more than 12 months to fall pregnant. It's not going to happen overnight for everybody, but within 12 months, most couples are able to fall pregnant if you don't have an underlying condition that causes problems with fertility. However, if you are over 35, I'd recommend that you, if you haven't been able to conceive within six months, I'd probably start talking to your GP and maybe look at speaking to a fertility specialist just to get some advice, do some tests um, and look a little bit deeper into what might be causing the delay. Now, if you have a confirmed endodiagnosis and you have the symptoms of IBS, it's likely that you have both because I think this causes a lot of confusion. I have some people who have endometriosis in my clinic and they ask, I'm confused, like, do I still have IBS or do I have endo? Like, which one do I have? So I'd just like to take this opportunity to remind you that IBS is just a group of symptoms. So it tends to come as a package deal with lots of other chronic health conditions. So we commonly see IBS co-diagnosed with celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and diverticular disease, just as a couple of examples. And endo is another one. So it's very common that we see IBS co-occurring in endometriosis. It's just that endometriosis is probably the underlying cause that you have IBS. So that's why we need to figure out if you have IBS, do you have something else that's causing your IBS that we can figure out? Now, Unfortunately, at this point, we do not know the root cause of IBS and endo. 
So that makes it really hard to pinpoint exactly why these women are at higher risk of having both. However, the one good thing is that we are starting to learn about the commonalities between the conditions and the crossover really gives medical researchers some excellent clues as to what might be the root cause. So I'll just discuss with you briefly what some of the common um, causes are of both conditions. So the first one being, we see that there are hormone imbalances in both populations. And if you've listened to my episode number 13, you'll have learned a bit about the menstrual cycle and how the hormones that are produced during the cycle can interplay with our brain and our gut as well. So we have estrogen receptors, for an example, in our gut um, that can affect the way our gut functions. So the second thing is that in both conditions, we do see chronic inflammation throughout the body. Thirdly, um, both groups suffer with a lot of stress and anxiety and depression. And we know that our mood neurotransmitters from our brain interact with our gut via the gut-brain connection and can cause again, gut changes or disturbances. Both groups have that hallmark feature of visceral hypersensitivity. So remember that's having a very sensitive gut and an overactive gut-brain communication. And we also know that both groups have gut dysbiosis. So that's when the normal balance of bacteria is disrupted in the intestine. So now that's going to lead me into this next topic, because I did say I wanted to talk about the gut microbiome and the low FODMAP diet. So this is a really great segue. So firstly, I have spoken many times about the gut microbiome, and I probably will continue to talk about it for decades to come. It is such an important thing to understand about health. So firstly, the bacteria that live inside our large intestine is what we call the gut microbiome. And they are so incredibly important for so many aspects of our health. Not only do they make nutrients for us, they also help reduce inflammation, they improve our immunity, and they regulate blood sugar levels. Oh, and also don't forget that they help us balance hormones. There are even a group of bacteria in our gut known as the estrobilome, and they are intricately involved in helping us balance estrogen in our body so that it's not too high and not too low. Okay, so then what is gut dysbiosis? This is when the community of bacteria in our gut, in our intestine, is out of balance. And this can wreak havoc on our entire immune, metabolic, digestive, and hormone function. That's just a few of them. So currently the science is still a little behind when it comes to testing for gut bacterial balance. I personally use an Australian company called Microba, And so they use a high quality gene sequencing technology to observe the numbers and types of bacteria in the gut, but it is still quite expensive and I guess difficult for some to access. So how do we keep our gut happy? This is, it's simple, but I find that in the modern world, people find this really hard to implement, especially on their own. So the secret is eat more fiber. And the most important consideration is leaning toward ensuring that you get a variety of fiber in your, in your diet. So there are three types of fiber. There's insoluble, soluble, and resistant starches. And each have a different role that they play in the gut, but we want to be eating all types of fiber. 
But if I was to say that there was a very, very special kind of fiber that I definitely want everybody to focus on, and that would be the special group called prebiotic fibers or fermentable fibers. This type of fiber is so incredibly important because it is the preferred food source of our good gut bacteria. So it therefore encourages the growth and maintenance of a healthy gut bacterial profile. And this is the number one way to improve gut dysbiosis or gut imbalance. And it's a strategy that I use in all my consultations with clients. However, here is the caveat. People who suffer with endometriosis and IBS become symptomatic, i.e. that is that their symptoms flare when they eat these foods. And this is because when the bacteria eat these foods, they have a great big gassy party and it can blow up the volume of the intestine. And what's really interesting here is that research has shown that people without endo and without IBS, they get the same bowel expansion and gas buildup with these foods, same as the you know people with endo and the people with IBS, but they don't report any symptoms. And this was proven in a study where they took those two groups of people, people who didn't have um, IBS and people who do have IBS, and they gave them a load of fermentable um, prebiotic fiber. They used an MRI machine to look at the amount of gas that was being produced in the bowel. And then they also got the participants to report their pain um, and any bowel changes that they were noticing from having more of these foods. And believe it or not, the Both groups had the same amount of gas in their bowel, but only the IBS group reported that they had issues, um, symptoms that came about from eating the food. So it's really evident that people with IBS and endo as well, they both have that hallmark symptom of visceral hypersensitivity um, that, yeah, they have that really sensitive gut. So some of the reasons that, for example, an endometriosis population might have um, more sensitive gut, it could be related to the fact that endo, um, it may have grown and traveled to the bowel. So it'd be sticking there on the bowel. Therefore, changes in gas and movement in the bowel can cause an irritation to the endo that's um, sticking there and it causes a flare up of pain. Other suggested reasons for increased gut sensitivity would be linked to chronic inflammation, that overactive gut-brain communication. And you might notice that when you're stressed or anxious, you have worse IBS symptoms. That imbalance in gut bacteria is definitely a play if if you've got that dysbiosis happening. Um, And it could also be causing something called SIBO, which is also known as small intestinal bowel overgrowth. So what can be done about this? Now, in 2017, Monash University looked at the effectiveness of a low FODMAP diet on the symptom management among women with IBS alone or in conjunction with endometriosis. And I will explain what the low FODMAP diet is in just a minute. But the results of this study were really impressive. So the findings showed that 72% of women with endometriosis had a greater than 50% improvement in bowel symptoms on the low FODMAP diet. And interestingly, more women experiencing the improved symptoms had both IBS and endometriosis 
compared to just the people who had IBS alone. It's really interesting. And um, in general, a lot of the studies that look into the effectiveness of the low FODMAP diet for just a general IBS population um, generally get about that 75% improvement. So very similar. So I actually have previously discussed a low FODMAP diet in the IBS episode, which was episode 15. So if you're interested to go back and listen, go ahead. However, I will just do a quick little summary for you now. So the low FODMAP diet is a short-term elimination of those fermentable fibers and prebiotic fibers that I mentioned before. So they're a group of fibers in carbohydrates um, that cause that gas buildup essentially and um, changes in water in the bowel. So the low FODMAP diet is aimed at reducing symptoms and providing relief really quickly. And this is why I love using it with my clients because it is so quick at reducing pain and it's not that restrictive. I know that it sounds like a, you know, an elimination diet sounds highly restrictive. There is not a single food group that you have to cut out on the, on the FODMAP diet. It really is just a bit of a random bunch of foods that have been scientifically tested for how much FODMAP they contain. Now, if you're wondering what the hell FODMAP means, it's a really long word and you can, you'll, you'll see why we shorten it. So it's fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So it's a very big mouthful. We definitely just need to call it FODMAP from now on because that's just crazy to say that all the time. So there is a, just a short-term elimination on for two to six weeks maximum. In that time, you'll have symptom relief. Then we start the re-challenge phase and that can go for anywhere between eight to 10 weeks. And after the re-challenges are complete, you will move on to your adapted FODMAP diet. That means the foods that you reacted to during the, the challenges, you're probably going to keep them out of your diet for a little while longer. And for all of those foods that you didn't have a reaction to during the challenges, we can now bring them back in freely into your diet. And the idea is that you really can do these re-challenges every three to six months, depending on how often you would like to retest your tolerance. And this is because your tolerance will improve over time. So remember when I was talking before about gut health and gut dysbiosis, with removal of the FODMAP foods that are affecting you, you're going to have more energy and more focus and ability to be able to implement more of the gut health strategies that I talked about, like adding more fibers in. And, and I talked in part one about the Mediterranean approach as well. So bringing in these strategies into your diet may start to actually heal your gut heal the gut um, balance in there. So the, the bacterial balance. And then when you re-challenge some of your poorly tolerated foods, you might find, oh, I actually can eat this now. And that's so exciting. So it really is just a very quick relief. And then long-term, we may be able to bring them all back in with some other strategies in place to really get your gut looking good. And I do want to drive home here that it is so incredibly important to follow the FODMAP challenges phase properly because the consequence of following the low FODMAP elimination part, that that first phase in the long term will starve your good gut bacteria. So this puts your gut and immune health in a worse state than before. 
And I really have had some horror stories come through my clinic of people who were started on the low FODMAP diet or, um, you know, and didn't finish it, didn't follow through, or perhaps they, you know, printed out something online, you know, with all the foods to cut out from your diet and unfortunately didn't understand the importance of the next phase of rechallenging. So, you know, five years down the track, they're walking through my door with terrible, terrible gut health um, and immune, poor immunity, you know, getting sick left, right and center and possibly even triggering um, long term chronic health diseases. So I hope I've made that really clear. You must do the rechallenge phase. You cannot stay on FODMAP forever. And I do recommend that you see someone like myself who's got FODMAP training who can walk you through how to rechallenge correctly. Um, it's definitely not something that you want to be mucking around with on your own. Now, just to briefly let you know, if you're wondering what the FODMAP groups are, I'm just going to list them here for you. So first one is fructose in excess of glucose. So there's a real chemistry of picking fruits that are um, containing more fructose than glucose ratio. Lactose, which comes mostly in dairy products except hard cheeses. Polyols. So things like sorbitol, xylitol, mannitol, they all end in ol. And you might even see that on the back of um, some, you know, sugar-free chewing gums. They use xylitol as a sweetener. Um, that can easily cause some diarrhea-type symptoms if, had, if taken in a large quantity. Mannitol. There's a group called fructan and FOS, which is short for fructo-oligosaccharide. And our last group is GOS, and that is known as galacto-oligosaccharide. So if you're interested in knowing more about the FODMAP diet, if you'd like to experience that insane relief in um, gut pains, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, come over to my Instagram and slide into the DM. Chat to me about what you're looking to try and achieve and, and we can have a chat about what I can offer you. So... I'm now just going to quickly debunk the gluten thing, right? So I just listed the FODMAP groups there and not at one point did I say gluten. This is because gluten is not a FODMAP. In fact, it's not even a fiber or carbohydrate. Gluten is a protein found in wheat. And I hear this and read this on the internet so many times over that Eliminating gluten is an absolute must for managing endometriosis. Now, to kind of break that, there has only been one study to date that looked at the effect of a gluten-free diet in an endometriosis population. And although the study did find a really impressive amount, so 75% of participants did report a reduction in painful symptoms, the study did not control for fructans. So fructans is one of those fermentable prebiotic fibers that we find in wheat. We also find it in garlic and onion and a few other foods as well. Um, and so it comes alongside gluten in wheat products. And a lot of gluten-free diets, for example, eliminate bread. And then, for example, if you were told then to re-challenge with bread, you would then re-challenge. But you'd be, you're not actually looking at whether it was gluten or fructan that was bothering you so much. So I do recommend getting someone like myself on board who understands food chemistry and food composition so that 
you can understand what you're challenging properly um, and not getting confused because it is a real science um, that isn't easy to understand a lot of the time. So I do really feel for people out there on the internet trying to understand this messy, messy space. Um, And I'm really sorry for all of that on the internet. I'm trying my best to set the record straight. So before I dive into talking about excess estrogen, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a list, like a quick start list of some of the things that you can do outside of the FODMAP diet to help with bloating, pain, constipation and diarrhea if you've got endometriosis. So the first one is increase your fiber intake or start a high quality low FODMAP fiber supplement. Number two. Increase your water intake above two liters a day. That two liters is very general. It really depends on uh, how much you exercise, what your body weight is, and how much you sweat as to figure out how much water you need. But as a general rule, most people need well above two liters. Sometimes um, you might even need up to three or four liters depending on how how much water you're losing every day. Try to just drink less than two cups of coffee per day because that is a gut irritant and avoid caffeinated beverages. So that means like, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and um, energy drinks. They're going to cause all sorts of things to move very quickly through your gut. And I definitely notice that when I have a coffee, I am straight to the toilet in 30 minutes. Um, Have a look at how much spicy food and high fat foods you eat. So these are another um, group of gut irritants that easily set people off and not for everybody. Some people have really strong, strong stomachs and they can handle high fat, high fat meals without it going straight through them. Another one would be reduce carbonated beverages. So um, fizzy drinks, um, sugary drinks as well. Try to avoid fruit juices. It's got way too much fructose that will upset your tummy. Avoid chewing gum. They contain those artificial sweeteners that I mentioned before. And also chewing gum encourages more gas to enter your bowel. Um, Avoid artificial sweeteners. So if you see diet products, diet drinks, diet yogurts, a lot of that will tend to have artificial sweeteners in there. Some um, new products now actually use something called stevia, which is a natural sweetener. And so if you are looking for, you know, a low sugar um, kind of treat, I think something with um, stevia is perfectly okay. This is simple, but so effective. Chew your food well. Try to slow down your eating. Um, That will stop you from swallowing so much air while you're eating, especially if you talk while you're eating. Um, And really, there's no set amount of how much to chew your food. But ideally, you don't want to still be chewing your last bite and then putting a new bite in your mouth because you obviously haven't finished chewing your previous bite. And that will um, cause if you haven't chewed properly, it gives your gut more work to have to do and the food might might not digest as easily. Um, now check iron and magnesium supplements. So iron is well known for causing constipation. So you might want to change over to something that's a little bit easier to digest. And also, um, magnesium supplements can cause diarrhea. So you could use magnesium if you're chronically constipated. Um, but my advice would be try to, try to figure out what the root cause is of your constipation rather than trying to use something like magnesium to, um, help. I think that um, it's wonderful to get things moving for a start, but what if you don't have your magnesium supplements one day? You're going to have to um, find something else to keep you moving. 
stress. Oh God, stress is such a big player when it comes to our bowels. And it's really easier said than done, isn't it, to manage stress. I believe that stress management really comes down to that um, routine of daily practice that you have in your life. We can't, we aren't immune to avoiding, sorry, we cannot avoid stress and we're not all immune to stress. But if you can incorporate a simple sort of meditation just for five minutes a day or some kind of breathing technique, I use a lot of diaphragmatic breathing in in my client sessions um, or yoga and tai chi, things like that, just slow, mindful movement that takes your mind away from thinking about into the future, thinking about the past, just brings you into the present moment so you can focus on what is most important in your life and get that really good um, sort of mindful perspective. And just finally, um, looking at your meal patterns, your portions and the speed of which you eat, as well as your mindful eating skills. Those ones, are I put them last here because they're quite difficult for most people to be able to do a self-assessment with, knowing whether your meal patterns and portions, speed and, and mindfulness um, are, are good. Um, so if you are struggling with that or you feel like that's you, um, definitely reach out and let me know. Okay, let's move on to excess estrogen. This is a really interesting topic. So high estrogen production is a consistently observed feature amongst women with endometriosis and many hormonal treatments that doctors will recommend for managing endometriosis actually aim to decrease the amount of estrogen made by your ovaries and fat cells around the body. So they often will use like a progesterone uh, medication, which just essentially brings a balance between the estrogen and the progesterone. So endometriosis, as I mentioned in the first, um, in part one of this series, is what we call an estrogen loving condition. So estrogen is responsible for endometriosis cell growth. Like example would be like in the uterus and estrogen helps us grow um, that cell, that lining there, the endometrial tissue. And Estrogen also increases the production of something called prostaglandins in the body. So these little guys, they're like, they're like hormones. They're not really hormones. They're like little chemical messengers that can be inflammatory and they heighten inflammation and pelvic pain, pelvic pain that is associated with endometriosis. So having excessive amounts of estrogen in the body drives endometriosis. It progresses, it helps it grow, helps it move around the body, and it helps create that inflammation and pelvic pain that we, you know, hate in endometriosis. It's really one of the most horrible symptoms that comes with endo. So first up, here's some strategies for you. And I know I've talked a lot about fiber today, but I'm going to bring it up again because it is a powerhouse nutrient. So fiber, that roughage from food, it's going to bind onto estrogen in the gut and take it on a journey out of the body before it can be reabsorbed. So it essentially helps us eliminate excessive amounts of estrogen. And of course, it keeps our um, estrobilome happy. That's the name for the group of bacteria in our gut that help us regulate the amount of estrogen in the body. So 
most important thing is that regular healthy bowel movements is extremely important for a healthy hormone balance. And if you're struggling with constipation and diarrhea, it's a really good hint that we don't have good hormone balance in the body. Some other nutrients that assist with removing excess estrogen include calcium, zinc, selenium, vitamin C, and vitamin E. So to kind of put that in a nutshell, the aim of the game is to hit 30 grams of fiber every day and get this from a balanced diet that includes all food groups. So I, this is why I guess a lot of restrictive eating patterns that can seem so enticing on the internet um, can actually be quite detrimental because by cutting out whole food groups or major food groups, for example, dairy is a really big one that gets cut out frequently, um, means if you're not re replacing with adequate calcium in your diet, this can be contributing to excess estrogen. Okay, another really interesting one. Bioactive compounds like flavonoids, carotenoids, and indoles also heavily influence the removal of estrogen from the body. And these guys are largely found in cruciferous and brassica vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, turnips, Brussels sprouts, rocket, bok choy, and kale. So a lot of green, leafy kind of guys. So if you're not a big fan, it really does pay off to learn how to cook more with these types of foods um, and learn different ways to prepare them that make them delicious. Because I do understand that, you know, boiled Brussels sprouts is pretty nasty. <laughs> I don't like boiled Brussels sprouts either, but putting them in the oven with olive oil and um, a little bit of herbs, like you might even do a little bit of chili if you can tolerate chili honestly just turns them into the most joyous little little cabbages, I guess. <laughs> um, so I hope I'm driving home here with this fiber talk and veggie talk and all of that, that this is also why grain-free, low-carb, paleo and keto diets are not advised for managing endo. So not only do those diets lack fiber, they also tend to have high amounts of saturated fats because there are quite large portions of animal products in there. Um, and research shows that reducing saturated fat intake by just 50% can reduce your estrogen levels by 20%. So that's huge. And I talked a lot about saturated fat in part one of this series. So if you want to go back and listen to that and um, catch up, go for it. Now, I did say that I'm going to debunk soy as well. So some of you might have heard that soy foods add estrogen to the body. They contribute to cancer, infertility, and are not good for endometriosis. So <laughs> this is my opinion. Firstly, soy is a legume and it's an excellent source of plant protein, prebiotic fiber, vitamins, minerals, and phytochemicals. And when enjoyed in its traditional unprocessed form, such as like tofu and edamame, miso, natto, soy sauce, and tempeh, it's actually a very healthy food to eat. And this is particularly because it provides incredible heart health benefits by increasing good cholesterol and reducing bad cholesterol. Now, you're probably all saying, what about that plant estrogen that you find in soy? Like, isn't that disruptive for hormones? So firstly, yes, there is a plant version of estrogen in soy and that's, it's called phytoestrogens. However, it is much milder and weaker than our own human estrogen. So 
it while it has the ability to weekly, and that's important, weekly bind to estrogen receptors in our body, actually in doing so, it can have both an agonist and antagonist effect. So what that means is that if, say, your body has high levels of estrogen, like in endometriosis, phytoestrogens actually help decrease your estrogen levels. So it has this really interesting dual action in the body where it can actually um, help balance our hormones. Now, I do want to let you know that there aren't any specific studies on using soy in endometriosis. So at this point, I'm going to say I wouldn't recommend eating buckets and buckets of it. Um, My recommendation is just stick to no more than two to three serves per week. And I'm only saying that because we don't have that finite information yet from the research, but we do know from having a look at other groups, you know, around um, cancers and things like that. This is typically typically where the um, recommendations sit. Now, finally, I'm going to make a mention of pesticides and dioxins. So dioxins, which are environmental pollutants and pesticides, which farmers use on fruits and veggies and things like that. If eaten in excessive quantities, they can generate reactive oxygen species. So that's that stuff that creates oxidative damage in the body and damage to our tissues and cells. And they increase inflammation and also interfere with hormonal pathways and signaling in the body. So this is why we call them endocrine disruptors or endocrine means hormones. So the hormone system of the body is disrupted. So my advice here is just remove the skin where possible from your fruits and veggie. Or if you prefer to eat the skin, like for example, you know, you're out and you don't have a peeler, but you have a nice apple in your handbag or you have strawberries because oh my God, who's going to take the skin off strawberries? Just aim to wash them with a bit of bicarb soda beforehand. Um, If you don't have that available, water is fine. Just use water to wash it. Um, And where you can, try to buy some organic fruits and veggies for those things that you just can't um, peel all the time. If that's available to you, because it is very expensive to buy organic foods and I myself do not totally stick to this. I will organic where possible, um, where I would really like to focus that on that. But most of the time, just washing it is something that I will do. Now, I'm just going to briefly talk about lifestyle. I'm not going to talk in depth about this, um, but I do want to highlight the importance of sleep, stress and movement. So nutrition is not the only environmental factor that we have influence over that can flare IBS symptoms in endometriosis. So what we call on this podcast here, the off the plate concepts are something that we regularly talk about. And I also talk about these in my consultations. So our sleep, our stress and our movement is intricately related with IBS and endometriosis because it plays a huge role in impacting our hormones, our mood and our energy levels. But I know, again, this is easier said than done. Because when you have a chronic illness like endometriosis, it can seem, you know, really a big task to tackle food and, you know, these lifestyle factors on top of things. So my advice to you is break these down into simple steps. This is the easiest way to progressively improve in all areas. And how I often describe this is think about your health like four legs of a table. So... One leg is your nutrition, one leg is sleep, 
one leg is stress and the other is movement. And what you'll notice probably throughout your life is that when one of those legs doesn't function, like for example, if you don't sleep very well, it tends to um, cause the whole table to topple. Um, You know, if one leg is out, probably just going to have a fairly wobbly imbalanced table, but it might not fall over completely. So think about how, you know, if you're not sleeping well, you're tired the next day, you're looking for treats and foods that give you comfort and perhaps contain a bit more sugar and fat than is particularly healthy to um, give you energy. Um, You definitely don't feel like doing exercise if you haven't slept well because you feel tired. Like, why do you want to go to the gym if you're tired? Um, And then think about then if you um, aren't doing so well, for example, if you're not doing well with your exercise because you're so tired all the time, then that leg gets knocked out. And then we might find that because you only have two legs on a table that requires four legs, your table's going to topple. And so it has this effect of dragging everything down with it. Don't think about this in a negative way, because if we're if we're slowly working a little bit, just little tiny little improvements across all four legs of your table, the table's going to start lifting together. So my advice is that taking small steps to work on each leg of the table will have incredible benefits um, and never doubt the power of a small change done consistently. Don't put so much pressure on yourself to be, you know, nailing all of these aspects of your health. It's more about small and consistency. That is it. So some of my favorite recommendations in this area would be um, learning how to use diaphragmatic breathing to manage stress. Um, That is a wonderful technique that will switch you from fight or flight stress mode into rest and digest calm mode. I love this one and I use it all the time before I do public speaking. I... I guess I'd say I'm pretty confident at public speaking, but my body says otherwise. I seem to get shaky and my voice, you know, trembles. Uh, So I practice that diaphragmatic breathing, just 10 of them. That's all it is. It takes one minute to do. Uh, And then when I get up, I'm not shaking anymore and I don't have that trembly voice. So it's really quick and really powerful. Another one would be doing just five to 10 minutes of a mindfulness app before you go to bed. This will help calm your mind down to prepare you for sleep. Uh, And if you're one of those people that just gets those racing thoughts when you're laying in bed, this is an absolute must. And there's lots of apps, Headspace, Smiling Mind and Calm are probably my top three. Something that I'm always practicing and trying to remember to do every day is gratitude journaling. So this is the concept where you have a little book, you might have it in your bedside table, so you might do it before you go to sleep or when you wake up. Um, And you wanna write out one thing that made you happy, one thing that you learnt, something you're grateful for, and one intention for tomorrow. And this daily practice will help you see the positives in your life, the positive in your day. The more you focus on positive things, the more positive you will feel and the more good things that will come to you because you attract um, positive things. (laughs) The last one is joyful movement. So this is movement that makes you feel good. If you hate the gym, don't go to the gym. If you hate walking, don't walk. It's about exploring and being open to different types of movement um, 
realizing that whatever that might be, whether that's small or big, is fine. And this took me years to really feel comfortable with. I used to think I had to be lifting weights or running or doing something quite strenuous to achieve health and wellness. Uh, And then I found that that just kind of stressed me out because I didn't really want to do those things. So the day I started moving more towards things that I really like, which would be things like bike riding and walking. Um, And I do like going to the gym, but I don't like going, you know, five days a week. So I'm happy if I go two or three days a week. Very happy with that. (laughs) So I hope this has been helpful for you. I'm going to wrap up now and um, just do a little summary of the things I talked about today. So firstly, we did um, a talk about the link between endometriosis and IBS. We talked about the gut microbiome and the low FODMAP diet for managing IBS-like symptoms. We debunked gluten and soy and just gave a little update on the scientific evidence around those topics. I then spoke about excess estrogen and how this drives endometriosis and um, some of the dietary strategies to help bring it back down into balance. And that included things like fiber and brassicas or cruciferous veggies and um, limiting those endocrine or hormone disruptors from pollutants and pesticides. And now I've just finished on those lifestyle strategies. So just a brief look into sleep and stress and movement and how bringing that into your nutrition changes can be really, really beneficial in getting you to a wonderful place where your gut and your hormones are in balance, which essentially reduces your estrogen, reduces inflammation, slows the progression of endometriosis down so that you're not going back for your laparoscopies, you know, within two years time. So if you're feeling really lost with managing your endo and IBS and just feel really confused with all the online information, I'd love to be able to help you and tell you more about my endometriosis program. I'm a FODMAP trained dietitian and an endometriosis dietitian. So if you've been trying to find practitioners who understand you and understand your condition and what is the best solution to help you, I have created a signature framework that I use in my clients that gets results. So come over to my Instagram page, which is endometriosis.dietitian. And it's dietitian spelt D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N, which is how we spell it in Australia. So send me a DM or a private message um, to start the conversation. Or alternatively, you could send me an email. So that is christy at christyleenutrition.com.au. So if you want that information or you want to see it written down, head over to the show notes where you'll find it all there. So thank you all for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. We're really grateful for the time you spent with us and can't wait to do it again. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hop over to Apple Podcasts or Facebook and leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to us via the Nourish, Nurture, Breathe Facebook or Instagram pages and check out nourishnurturebreathe.com for our show notes. Thank you and until next time. Remember to nourish, nurture and breathe every day.